Francisco Garcia is a writer and journalist from South London whose work explores what some might call dark, modern themes, stuff like true crime and strange internet subcultures. Another topic he's revisited a number of times is missing persons. In 2019, a piece he wrote for Vice about the mysterious washing up on an Irish beach of a dead man who seemed to have deleted his past received plaudits for its sensitive treatment of a difficult subject. In his debut book, If You Were There, published this week, it is Garcia's mind whose shores are lapped by the memories of those lost. The book investigates what many have called the present missing persons crisis in the UK, paying particular attention to one individual, Garcia's father, Cristobal, who has been absent from his life since the writer was a small child. I'm Alexis Self, and on this special edition of the Monocle Weekly, Francisco Garcia joined me to discuss if you were there and why, in 2021, so many people are being labelled as missing. I started by asking him how his project came into being. I suppose, in terms of like my writing practice, for want of a better term, I've always been interested in a lot of the things a book deals with. So whether that's homelessness, addiction, you know, mental health, the sort of, generally speaking, the sort of social fabric and social safety net getting a bit more, or getting weaker over time, particularly over the last decade or so, due to austerity, I guess, and due to political decisions that were made. I started to realise, I was looking at all these different things over the last maybe three or four years, there was this common denominator running through it, and that was in all the different ways they were either contributing to people going missing, or they were all different kinds of missing in their own way, if that makes sense. And of course, there's also the personal element where, as I'm sure we'll get into, is my dad has been absent from my life. An estrangement, essentially, but quite a complicated estrangement. So when I started looking at missing people as a topic, I don't know, something maybe clicked in my head. I can't even remember when necessarily, but it did, where I realised the best way of describing his relationship to me or my relationship to him, he felt like a missing person to me or he was missing to me. So I thought... Again, to extrapolate that out, I thought, well, if I'm dealing with this estrangement, there's a, perhaps a certain kind of missing, and I'm interested to explore that. How many other people are living with this similar estrangement and absence in their lives? So I just got me interested, and I thought, well, I looked around, and I was like, no one's really writing about this, <laughs> and no one seems to have really done this. I was like, well, there's, not, there's something to do here. There's, there's a nugget of something interesting there, and it went from there, really. It's good you mentioned that, because, you know, especially now at the moment, the book's coming out at a time when... It said there's a missing persons crisis in the UK and it's something that's been thrown into sharper relief by a number of high-profile cases over the past year. I know you go into the semantics of this label in the book, but do you think it's a fair term to use, crisis, or, or is it unhelpful? I think that's a really interesting question. I don't want to sound like a cop-out answer at all, but it does depend on who you ask. And I think even now, despite the fact this has been years of my life in the writing and the reporting, I wouldn't position myself as an expert on these things. Like, I think there's people that are experts and whether they exist in the framework of charities or frontline workers and say, like, you know, mental health or um, homelessness or whatever other aspect, I think they would all have different answers. But this crisis, because I think there's this headline number that, for example, the charity Missing People use where there's around... It changes a bit, and I'm pretty sure it's based on the National Crime Agency statistics that they publish every year, but generally speaking... I think the headline figure is 180,000 people are reported missing every year. Now, most people that I spoke to would agree that's actually a vast underestimate, and it's a pretty shocking figure to begin with. But of course, within that number, 
there's a huge amount of ambiguity and um, what's the right term? Range between different experiences of missing, right? So that can range from everything from the sort of cases we might read about in the newspapers or online where someone's been abducted and, you know, that's a cut and dry missing person's case or someone has absconded or has taken themselves missing. Those reported incidents will range right back down to, for example, a teenager was quite drinking with their friends, say, and skipped curfew and the distraught parents are at home. You know, it's. I think I wrote about this briefly in, in one of the opening chapters, but, you know, that point where they're meant to be home at 10.30 and they haven't come home until midnight and the parents are getting, you know, more jittery and distraught at home, they ring the police and their missing persons report is filed. Well, that becomes one of those statistics. Mm. But are they really a missing person? Yeah. No, like, I mean, they're not. And it's, they, they, they were absent. They weren't where they were meant to be. But they're not what, they're what we perhaps culturally consider a missing person. Does that make sense? I think... I think that label, just so to look back, the thing about this crisis is that, so you can argue about the figures, how they're recorded, you can argue about what constitutes a missing person, but I think what's undeniable is there is a crisis of invisibility in this country, more broadly speaking, and missing maybe one element of that. There's a lot of people who are forgotten or on the risk of the perilous risk of becoming forgotten, whether that's through poverty or addiction or modern slavery or whatever else so i think mm. that's the, that that is a real crisis yeah we can argue about the semantics of it but i think the wider invisibility crisis is very pressing i think and you know i know you're a fan of of andrew o'hagan's journalism and you know much of that is, is focused on the internet and it's kind of alienating effects on the individual you know reading his work i often feel he benefits from from being kind of non-digitally native having lived at a time when the web didn't exist do you think it's harder to write objectively about the internet or as someone whose whole adult life has, has been formed or lived in its presence? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak for myself by this, but I don't... I, I agree with the point of, like, Andrew Hagen or, like, oh, writers of that generation, perhaps... I like John Lanchester as well, the London of Books. He writes quite well um, about some of these topics sometimes. But I find it's impossible to be objective about it because, like you say, I mean, I'm just about old enough to... I grew up with... Like, I think my first exposure to social media would have been, like, MSN when I was a teenager which seems already so, like, that could have happened in the Jurassic period, do you know what I mean? Like, or Bebo, like, do you know that kind of vibe? And, like, so, but incrementally, before knowing it, I was quite, you know, you know, my late teens, probably quite annoying, like, being like, nah, social media, I'm not part of that, like, what a load of rubbish. But then, of course, it does swallow, <laughs> you get swallowed into that fold and stuff. Yeah, I don't, I know that that's not really my wheelhouse. I think there's loads of people my age that can write really well about the internet and those effects that you described, but I, I just think I have a, that's oh, going to sound like a bit... No, I don't mean to sound that arrogant anyway, but like I have enough self-awareness to know that I wouldn't be good at that, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? So it's like I want to... I know where my strengths lie, and it's not that I'm not interested in that, but I don't think I could write interestingly about that experience that you describe. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, 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 totally, totally. And and I get that from, from the book, 100%, you know. And actually, that brings me to it, uh, something I wanted to ask you, and obviously you spoke about your father earlier, and, you know, he's the kind of fulcrum of the narrative. You know, he, he's both kind of omnipresent and absent throughout the book. I found it interesting, given not only the bare facts of your relationship with him, but also the kind of literary and non-literary vogue for parent-hating, that there wasn't more, <laughs> that there wasn't more anger in your, in your prose. Did you feel angry when you started the book? Or are you a saint? Or, you know, <laughs> give us something. How, how are you so forgiving? Oh man, it's a real. It's it's. I'm glad that's come through in it because, again, like 
I'm not trying to be like I'm Francis of Assisi. Like I've, I have given up worldly vanity and hatred and blah blah blah. I have. I think the answer to that is, I am not. This isn't like oh shots fired, but like I got a bit bored of that and like oh difficult relationship with my daddy. Like I mean, come on, like I've got no interest in writing that. I don't because it wouldn't be. It's not true. And like I, I, I think the answer to that would be, a lot of these events that I describe happened a hell of a long time ago in my own life. So if I ever did feel <laughs> I'm not a resentful person in general, I, I, and that's not again saying I'm a saint, but like genuinely. This may be to my detriment. I'm very much focused on like forward. I like going forward and forward and forward. I like reflecting on things. I try to do that, and I hope this was the book was successful in that. But I'm not one for I don't know what the right word would be self pity or or resentment because I do feel because if this all happened so long ago, I've had enough time, and the facts have been a bit sketchy for years. So I know what I know. There's nothing there that makes me dislike. Certainly not hate the guy, or dislike the guy. I feel. And I've always felt, generally, from the age of maybe my teens, I never, I never had an absent father issue. I think the problem actually was I had my attention and that sphere, if you like, of my sort of memory, whatever you want to call it, was always bound up with my mum's death because that was the really pressing thing. That was really bad. And then my dad was always quite a bit of an absent-ish figure anyway. Well, it's not like I have, I have strong memories of him, but they're few and far between. And like this other event happened at the same time which maybe took the pressure off the what you say, like building to this, like, for example, if it had been the other way around and I don't know, say I was still living with my, not living with my mum, but my mum was still around and my dad was absent. Well, then, you're, then your attention has got that one focus, right? It's got a focus. Then maybe that resentment would have come. But because of the facts of what I, what happened in my childhood, like I never, there's nothing in there to, to hate really. I felt Maybe we'll come on to this, I don't know, but there's the fact of him being a very young man who suffered from several different interlocking kinds of vulnerabilities, whether that was addiction, literally just being a young man in a different country with no money and not particularly good grasp of... No, no, he spoke English pretty well, but, you know, it wasn't an easy life. I don't think he had a very fair crack of the whip in general, you know. Mm, mm. So, no, I, I felt... And I mean this in like every sense of the word, like pity for the guy, which is maybe a worse emotion to feel about your your dad than resent. I don't know, but I do. I felt compassion for him, like, and I felt sad for him. I felt really sad for him, and that's maybe worse. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I you go at the end of the book to his hometown in in southern Spain, and I won't give away what happens there, but. You know, that's another another facet, I guess, of of a lot of autobiographical writing is this kind of search for identity, and and you know that often is connected to place. Uh, when you went back there, did you feel a kind of innate sort of spiritual connection, or did it just feel like it could have been anywhere? It's a funny one. I think that's a great question. I'll go into a l- I'll go into a bit of detail on that because it is. It happened in September last year, so September mid mid to late September twenty twenty when. We were living at a pretty weird time of life anyway. And I had this... I always knew that's where the book would end. I thought, yeah. I wasn't expecting some mad epiphany out of it. I wasn't expecting to go there and think, oh, I'm on holy land. Like, I, I understand now, you know. It's like a bit in The Sopranos where Tony takes away some hallucinogenic and he gets on the hill and goes like, I get it, I get it. I never, <laughs> expe- I never expected to have that moment because, you know, life's just not like that. And I did expect maybe... 
because I've had all this thing the whole way through my life, like this name I've been carrying around with me, man, like Francisco Garcia Ferreira. You can, like, we're sitting opposite each other now. You can see what I look like. I don't look like that. I don't look like my name. Like, maybe a little bit, but I don't look like my name. I don't speak Spanish. So that always felt very abstract. So I thought when I went there, maybe something would click. Maybe people would look at me and go, you belong here, you belong here. No, of course they didn't. But like, I'm just another English tourist abroad, really. And then I would say it was interesting. I went back because last time... I saw my dad would have been there in 2000, I think about 2000 it would have been. So a few months after my mum had died, it wasn't a particularly good trip. It was pretty fraught and for all different reasons. But he wasn't that well, I remember at the time. And I don't know, maybe subconsciously in some respect, I was just, that made me quite incurious about that place. But to go there, yeah, it was a pretty, and snippets came back when I went, which I didn't know that was going to happen. But maybe that's even false memory because I was sitting there being like, oh, I kind of remember this bit. Do I? Do I not? I don't know. Like, it was. Yeah, there was no grand epiphany. I put it that way. Mm. But I enjoyed mm. it. Don't get me wrong. It, it was also like I, it did feel. And I'm not saying. And it's not just literary. I won't go into what happens in the last chapter. But it wasn't a device. That's what I genuinely felt yeah. at the time. Like that, that's. I, and it's not like what I wrote at the end. Is genuinely what I felt there, and that wasn't a construction or a fabrication. That was genuinely how I felt, and I, I was quite happy to to leave it as I did really yeah you, you well you didn't do a Paulie Walnuts and ask for some gravy <laughs> although you did go to an Irish pub mate I, I, I might as well have done like I mean like, yeah so like oh yeah searching you know sniffing out the nearest full English breakfast I nearly I nearly did man like I was I was on that I think that was again you're playing up to the other half of you I was playing up to the English bit where I, and look this is actually a crucial part of it when I got there I went to Seville first because I was like I don't want to jump in cold to go into this small town city that my dad's from because like, it's got a bit of a reputation as well. Not undeserved, but I went to Seville first and I had about three days by myself where I was just like wandering about, having a very nice time, you know, eating and drinking out. But the third day, I was like, I'm not a particularly good solo traveller. I was like, I'm bored, like I want to talk to people. This is meant to be this big experience for me. Why can't I talk to people? Trying to chat to waiters and them just, be, them just being like, no, 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 like, shut up. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just, so I went to Lenny, I was like, oh, do you know, it's next to Gibraltar, that's another key point, because it's this bizarre place, man. It's, yeah. So you can see Morocco from, like, it's that south in Spain, you, you can see it over the coast. And see What's Morocco. the name of the town? La Linea. Yeah. Um, and you can see Morocco, and next to it is the vast rock of Gibraltar, which is the last bit of, one of the last bits of British imperial whatever in the world. So it's a bizarre place. It's a bit of a tax haven, yeah. all this sort of stuff. So there's loads of English people there. On the rock, La Linea, very Spanish. Yeah. You literally walk over the boat. It's not a it's not a boat, it's a walking border. You show your British passport and you're in British territory. So anyway, I was there and I was just like, I really want to talk to people. So I Googled, yeah, La Linea, Gibraltar, Irish pubs, and there was one in La Linea, 45 minutes from where I was staying. And I walked down there and I thought, well, I'm a journalist, like I'm up for any experience. Like, I'm just going to try it, you know, I'll do anything once, like I'm up for any experience. And I went there, it was fantastic. Like, I ended up, basically ended up like having this... It was just a yeah, bit, like I say, bitter irony, like drinking pints of Amstel like on the water, talking to people about my family, and then being like, "Oh, you've got to go and like track them down." But well, you're in La Linea, man. Then I was like, "I've revealed too much about myself to these random people," and I felt a bit embarrassed when I got back to my Airbnb. I was just like, "What? God, I was talking rot there." But it felt very cathartic in a sense, you know. Yeah, 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 I yeah. Did, yeah. Like, a, well, yeah. I mean, and that is interesting. You know, I mean, obviously, again, you know, goes back to what you were saying about your father and how you feel pity for him or, or at least kind of compassion. And, you know, there is, again, at the moment, there is a real kind of understanding of young men's kind of mental health as being particularly fragile. And I don't know, in a weird way, yeah, it did feel cathartic, that scene, because, you know, often 
men find it far easier to talk when they're in that kind of setting and they have that kind of social lubricant. And that's something that's obviously been missing over the past year. But yeah, the, the, the whole like device aspect of it is interesting because you know, I know this isn't a straightforward memoir, but it is autobiographical and, and it's an interesting story for a writer to take on their own life, you know, especially their childhood, mainly because you know, reality lacks fiction's neat parameters. Uh, did you make a conscious decision on the narrative structure or did you just let the kind of research take you in a certain direction? It's, um, it's a bit of both, really, because I spent, basically, in 2019, I spent a long time working on the proposal for the book to iron out like how much was going to be... Because I wasn't interested in writing a straight memoir. I'm 28. Like, who would... Why would I expect anyone to care? Like, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to read that book, you know. I think it did get governed a bit by by the reporting element because that's in a sense obviously the, the, the frame is my me look, thinking about this absence in my life but I was more concerned not more, not more or less concerned but very concerned about the reporting being able to stand not just servicing my journey towards something does that make sense so mm. but I would say no I, I, I worked on the structure quite hard but it wasn't a chore to write the book in any way so that it actually it wasn't like I agonised over it it became quite it was quite natural I think to like fit in oh wait what well, this happened to I think this happened to him here well, that makes sense about talking about, you know, housing and homelessness or whatever, because this is something he would have experienced. But I knew I was going to start in London and end in Spain. That's all I knew at the start. But then it all sort of fell into place as the reporting got a bit clearer, I yeah. would say. Yeah. And, and again, this is something that, you know, I found in your journalism is that it's very much, you know, psychogeographical about South East London where you grew up. I suppose I already sort of asked this, but did going to La Linea help you understand more about who your father was and 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 your mother as well? Because I know they met there or or in Seville, was it? Or yeah, well, I didn't even know until recently how they actually met, and it was in La Linea, but they met there. And again, because the timeline's a bit hazy because it's a long time ago. You know, people have moved on, and I, I do know the the structure of it, but they would have come back to London not that long after they met I don't think I don't know the exact time scale but then they had me and they were kind of rooted there for a bit but my upbringing was like I spent most of it was in South London but then I spent I moved to Scotland when I was quite young I was back and forth between the two like for my whole teenage years really so I always had this very strong sense of like <laughs> place and I think one of the reasons I'm quite evangelical about certain pretty unremarkable bits of South East London is because it does actually help me like uh, I don't want to say I sound like the most fey wanker ever but i will say it <laughs> like it does help me like um work through bits of the the past like because i'd like to imagine them in happier days like it wasn't always grim for them difficult yeah but you know i, I like i like walking around and thinking oh they would have been here and you know this is where we lived for a bit and blah blah blah. but going to linear no i don't maybe it did help me understand a bit more i don't know it was brief only a few days i think it was just nice and it was very useful to make it real even if I didn't necessarily remember loads of it and I didn't have this grand epiphany, it made this abstraction of this place that I knew and knew in my thoughts since I was a kid, but never stepped foot in. And to go there, yeah, that was pretty special, to make it solid under my feet, this place. Yeah. And, yeah, the last thing I want to ask you about is, again, going back to this whole idea of there being a particular missing persons crisis and, you know, the kind of strain on, on people's mental health of the past year. You know, I know that, in your book, a lot of you direct kind of a lot of criticism towards the kind of certain governmental institutions that are tasked with 
like solving or managing this issue you know as someone who's who's researched this a lot and come up close to it what would you think is the best way for this issue to be handled if not resolved which i suppose you think is impossible because you know it's just a kind of fact of of human existence really sure i mean that's a it's a big question but i think i've got the more i think about it the more i've been asked that question like i think i have a you know a straightforward answer i think the thing about this idea of solving missing on a wider existential question like you might as well be asked to solve murder like it's just, it's a state of like and also going missing is not a crime but do you think it is a particular problem no i think it's massive yeah, yeah. I mean, like i say i think it's wider thing about general invisibility and, and the general cracks in society widening like it is i think it's i would put my neck out and say it's easier to go missing now or it's easy to fall through whatever you want to call it the safety net the whatever that is easier than it was 15 years ago probably you can see that like we can see demonstrably with our own eyes like the places we go we can see a rise in street homelessness we can see the you know this last year has made that quite explicit you know but i think what to do to solve again not to solve sorry but to yeah. ameliorate a bit of like the the shocking numbers and the you know all the misery that's tendent to that is i think it's not well understood and i, I definitely didn't understand this until i started researching this topic for, for years now was the majority of people that go missing return they're not people that are lost to us forever. Those are the things that grab our attention, right? People that, are, you know, you see a case and you're instant, you're, you're something in your head, that, that impulse we all have for, like, drawn to mystery, that, that bit you're drawn to, right? Something terrible has happened. Most missing cases are not like that. Most people return, I can't remember the exact percentage off the top of my head, but charity missing people, their numbers say, like, I think 75% or more, again, don't quote me, but come back within two days. So most of that time... A vulnerability's opened up in someone's life, right? And they thought, for whatever reason, they might not be in their right minds necessarily, or that maybe they're fleeing something or whatever. But they've gone and they've come back. I think that is very ill-understood. And what happens when someone comes back? Because there's a thing... I was talking to an academic the other day at the University of Portsmouth where they have a Centre of Missing Person Studies. Very interesting conversation. And she was saying there's a thing like... called the cycle of missing, right? So there's the before bit where well, it leads up to somebody going missing. So a crisis has happened or, you know, something's opened up in someone's life. There's a missing episode itself. There's the coming back. Now, to stop that middle bit happening, stop the missing episode happening, you have to understand something like what led someone to go missing in the first place and what brought them back. And it might be the case in many of these cases, why do they come back? Well, nothing has changed. So then people go missing again. <laughs> There's a lot of repeat missing. People boomerang between this being in vision and being out of vision. So how can we stop that? Well, you need, clearly, it's, it's not an issue for policing. Now, the middle bit is on, you know, police in various cases will find people and bring them back, but the police aren't going to provide people with the services they need. They're not going to resolve that vulnerability that's opened up in someone's life. So you need properly funded services, whether they're mental health, domestic abuse or otherwise. You need have a conversation with the missing person themselves a lot, a lot of the time that's completely bypassed it's everyone but the missing person that gets the the attention you know so i think it's about centering those people in the middle of their own experiences and trying to stop from happening again because that is possible mm. it's very possible thank you to francisco garcia for joining me on the monocle weekly his book if you were there is out now this program was edited by steph chungu and nora hole i'm alexis self 
thanks for listening.